So uh, just remember, we talked about Peter last week, uh, and we talked about how uh, Peter's center uh, as, as leader of the Christian church uh, put him firmly in Jerusalem. And so if you're looking at uh, your map there, of course, you see Jerusalem uh, there in the land bridge in the orange between uh, Egypt on your southwest, and then you make your way up to the more European peninsula there. And of course, that is uh, essential because Jerusalem is this busy crossroads between Rome's work in the south as they went to Egypt, and it's important because uh, it's this, this place of both commerce and also of that sort of military movement. Uh, we know that Peter left Jerusalem, and last time we were together, we talked about how he went northeast. So we talked about how he went into the Jewish community, southwest there of the Caspian Sea. Between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, there was a substantial amount of Jewish community. And Peter very much saw himself as being an evangelist for the Jews. And uh, the reason there were so many Jews in that region is because that's where, during the exile, the Jews had been essentially taken uh, by the Persian Empire, well, uh, by the Assyrian Empire, and then released by the uh, Persians uh, after the conquest of Assyria. So that, that northeast area is where we've really been in our conversation thus far, and uh, Peter's work is attributed uh, to that region. Today we're going to be looking at two additional disciples. We're going to be looking at uh, Andrew, and we're going to be looking at James the Great, and I'll talk with you about why he's been given the name the Great. But Andrew himself was a, a native of Galilee, so he's born in Bethsaida and lived by the Sea of Capernaum. So if you've uh, got your map here, that is the tiny little dot that you have there uh, to the northeast of uh, Jerusalem. And the, he was a successful uh, fisherman. I mean, that was his career. Uh, we know a decent amount about Andrew. Actually, we know that his mother's name is Joanna. We know his father's name is John. You might be interested to know that what we translate as John would have actually been pronounced Jonah. And if Jonah rings a bell, Jonah was a person thrown into the water, right? He was trying to escape, uh, or he's trying to escape away from God's call on a boat. So it turns out that Jonah is the family name of fishermen. So like, you know, the Smiths were originally metal Smiths. The Jonas are considered to be boat people. And so here uh, we have Andrew as a disciple whose father is Jonah. He's a boatman. That's, that's their profession. And Andrew is significant because his brother is, you might know, Peter. So we talked about Peter. We talked about his significance. And as we talk about Andrew here today, I think a, an easy way to summarize how these two individuals are both important but different in their influence is Peter has this global kind of impact. You remember that at the end, he's considered the, the first leader of the Roman church, which later then becomes this long procession of leaders in the history of the church. Here, Andrew has not that kind of reputation. If Peter was interested in the large evangelism of the first century, Andrew was far more instrumental in particular individual evangelism. He was a witness or an inviter at a substantial way in the early church. So to make that point, we have to go back a little bit. Uh, you might know that Andrew was working the family business. He was uh, working in the boats and the fishing, and he heard of this guy 
called John the Baptist out in the wilderness. And Andrew apparently, among all of his brothers, uh, was not incredibly rooted at home because he decided he was going to leave the family business to go check out what this John was talking about. He goes, he hears John, he's compelled by it. And what we don't have in the scripture is an account of Andrew's conversion. We, we don't know when he decided, the moment he decided that he would leave John for Jesus. But we know that he was there the very day when Jesus comes to be baptized, which is clearly a moving moment in any person's life. John has been proclaiming the Messiah is coming. The kingdom of God will be at hand. And here Jesus shows up and John suddenly says, this is the Messiah, right? And then you hear the heaven, heavenly voice of God and the heavens are parted and down like a dove comes the spirit, right? There's this, this beautiful moment. And what we know of John's life is John angered some really important people. And so for that reason, he was captured and then ultimately killed. You probably know that story. And somewhere in the midst of that, John both being taken captive and killed and this amazing movement towards Jesus's ministry, uh, Andrew attaches himself to Jesus and becomes known as one of the 12. He personally, as scripture tells the story, personally invites his brother Peter and invites the disciple Philip to be followers of Jesus. So I, I don't want to make a statement that I can't back up, but I believe he's the most, uh, he has the most disciples to his credit, scripturally, that he invited to be followers of Jesus personally. Uh, he was uh, a partner. Wait a minute. Oh, yeah. Flip the page. Wrong side. Um, he is then listed... Uh, in the at the end of the book of Acts as one of the 12 disciples. The Acts details the 12 and his name is listed. But beyond the stories that we have of him inviting his brothers, uh, that we have of him leaving to go to John, there's not a whole lot with Andrew. There's a, he appears a few times, but the, the scriptural text doesn't give us a lot about him. Where it gets really, really interesting is church tradition that follows him. So if you've got your map here, We've already been to the sort of northeast there. Uh, now we have to look north of the Black Sea because tradition says, uh, a writer by the name of Eusebius tells us that he goes to Scythia, which is sort of on that northern, uh, the southern side of the Black Sea and up and around to the, to the north of that, which would be modern-day Russia. And uh, what's interesting about Andrew is the story is told that he goes to Russia to evangelize and there's differing accounts, but I'm going to tell you my favorite. I'm not saying historically factual, but I'm going to tell you my favorite. The story is that Matthew was up north preaching the gospel, and that word came that he had been captured. So Andrew, being a person of some ability, goes north to provide assistance to Matthew. When he arrives, he finds out that Matthew has been captured by a group of people who are cannibals. And so, Andrew comes, and he is able to secure the release of Matthew at great personal peril, and he is able to convert the tribe of cannibals to Christianity, leaving behind their former pagan ways. Now, there's zero historical evidence that this is true. What scholars suggest is it may truly reflect a story in which Matthew was indeed in trouble, and that Andrew did indeed come to his aid. 
as a person, uh, as a character told in the Bible, at least there's some reason we can believe he was that kind of person. That if there was a problem, he would be willing to meet it. So the cannibal story that will lead you to your personal interpretation. The the witness in Russia, we have good reason to believe happened. In fact, the Russian Orthodox Church claims Andrew as their patron saint. And we're going to actually have this twice today. We're going to talk a little bit about this idea of sainthood and actual different streams of the Christian church because uh, I think these two particular disciples help us with this. Um, but following his time in Russia, and this is really interesting, we're told that he goes to Greece. So, of course, you now you're going to have to go west on your map. He, he goes from the northeast, and he's going to go west. And the thing I think that Andrew can teach us about the early church was whether it was intentional or not, there seems to be a repeated pattern of the disciples evangelizing important people's wives. This happens in Acts, and it happens again in Andrew's story. So you have in Greece a Roman ruler. Uh, his name is uh, Agites. And uh, he's the proconsul. He's the Roman proconsul in the region. So he's the person who, somewhat like Herod in Palestine, is in control of this area. And here, Andrew goes and he evangelizes his wife, whose name is Maximilla. This happens multiple times. And like I said, I'm not sure, Scripture doesn't tell us if this is a strategic goal. I think it's striking that they come to places and seats of power, but they won't be heard by the ruler themselves, but they are heard by their wife. And it causes great disruption because suddenly you have in a moment which the clarion call is there no there is no other lord but Caesar, right? Uh, these men report to Caesar directly, and here their wife is compelled by the gospel. They hear the good news. Acts goes out of its way to point out you have someone like Lydia, who's a very prominent businesswoman in her community. She's counted as one of the first uh, leaders in her Christian community. It is striking here that women often become the first field of evangelism. And in many ways, it later disrupts the whole fold. And in some ways, to his credit, uh, Agedes is right. Um, and uh, later, Greece does become prominently Christian. We're going to talk more about that in a little bit. But strikingly, he decides that uh, he is unable to put up with this continued disruption. And he decides to have Andrew crucified. You remember that we talked about Peter was crucified, tradition says, but he has to be crucified upside down. Andrew, tradition says, was crucified, but in the shape of an X. And uh, so to this day, Christian tradition says that whenever you see an X, that is St. Andrew's cross. But what makes him different, as tradition tells it, is that he was not crucified with nails, but crucified with ropes. Because if one was not crucified uh, with nails, you wouldn't lose blood. And so your death would last longer. So it's said that he uh, hung on the cross for two days before finally giving up his life. And as the story tells it, he evangelized everyone that was there at the foot of his crucifixion. Now, what I, what I think is interesting... Uh, about Andrew is that his skull 
was essentially found, and it was taken to uh, the church in Constantinople. And what makes him an interesting is he's one of the few disciples where there's actual record of provenance of his skull. So we have many relics of the ancient church, many of which the evidence is dubious. That's actually going to be the case when we talk about James in just a moment. But we have legitimate re reason to uh, believe that his skull was held at the uh, cathedral in Constantinople, which you might know is the center of the uh, Greek Orthodox Church, right? The uh, the Eastern Church, the Byzantinian Church. Uh, his skull was taken to Naples uh, because uh, you had the Islamic conquest and essentially Christians were taking their prized items away from the oncoming collapse of the Eastern Empire. And so... In 1462, this is great, bear with me, there's a cool story here. 1462, Pius II goes to Naples, which is now itself under military threat, and takes Andrew's skull to Rome and says, we're going to keep this for you. Now, if you know your church history, you know there's not a very positive relationship between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. They have lots of reasons to mistrust each other politically, economically, not to mention culturally. And so this is a big deal. This is a little bit like, mm, I want to be clear, this, they're not hostile to each other in the way that like Russia would be hostile to the United States. But let's say it'd be like Canada coming and saying, we're going to take the Liberty Bell and the Statue of Liberty. We'll give it back to you someday, right? Uh, that would make us very uncomfortable. What are you going to do with it, you Canucks, right? Um, and, and so there's this weird kind of holding happening as the Roman church holds St. Andrew's skull. This is where it gets really interesting. This happened in some of our lifetimes. 1964, Pope uh, John Paul VI gives it back to the Greek church. And so it gets even more interesting than this. The Roman church had built for Andrew's skull a golden, uh, we wouldn't call it a statue, but it was a golden uh, jar that was shaped to be as if it looked like Andrew's face, which to Protestants, that's very weird. Uh, that crosses lots of our lines. Uh, we won't go into that. But regardless, it was golden and it was shaped into the face of Andrew. So the church, when they returned it in 1964, brings this whole ensemble to a new sanctuary that was constructed by the church to hold St. Andrew's body in the place where it's believed that he was crucified, right? Interesting. Gets more interesting because a member of the Greek Orthodox Church snuck into the church, grabbed this skull held inside this uh, statue, and they took the skull out and shattered the container. You ask why? Because in the Greek church, any object shaped in three dimensions to look like a person of faith is considered an idol. So they were so offended that Andrew's skull was held in a thing that looked like Andrew, they destroyed it. So you'll be glad to know the Orthodox Church went and built a cylindrical vessel that doesn't look like a face that now holds Andrew's skull inside the church. Now, this seems odd to a Reformed person. Uh, and you might know that the Eastern Church is all about 
uh, icons. They call it iconography, if you've heard that, that term. But they're only comfortable with it in two dimensions. So how do you uh, – uh, I'm going to break this down. How, what, what, why does this matter? The, the Greek Orthodox Church now has a 2D image of St. Andrew in their space of worship. The Roman Catholic Church has these three-dimensional statues that they've created to represent these people of faith. And the Reformed Church has white walls. <laughs> All of that's intentional and important. And so I think Andrew's a helpful touchstone for us here. Because what's unique about Andrew is that he has been claimed by all of the families of the church. We as Reformed people have no clue what to do with the Eastern Church because we have no connection to it. If you remember, our heritage, we split from the Roman Catholic Church. So our beef is with them. But the Roman Catholic Church, their frustration, of course, later came to be with the Reformers, but they originally had this ultimate split with the Eastern Church. Just about three or four hundred years, you saw this divisions after Jesus Christ. So you have this striking sort of move where here this disciple is claimed by both sides of the church and in some ways looked up to both sides of the church, but they disagree with how you should honor him. And I think that's really, really interesting because we would disagree with both of them and say, keep his picture out of your church. Because the reformers, we would say, right, we don't want to make a mistake and accidentally start worshiping Andrew. Right? We'd say, like, when you put his head in the middle of your sanctuary, maybe you slip up at some point and start thinking he's the important one. Are you following me? But however you land, and, and there are people, there are Christians seeking to be faithful in different traditions, I think the point helps us to ask ourselves the question, what are we comfortable with symbolically in worship? We honor these disciples, as these disciples are trying to do, right? But we're going to be uncomfortable bringing their skull into our sanctuary in a thing that looks like them. But how do we honor them? How do we honor that tradition? Because there's something compelling about the man who says, I'm not going to be crucified like my Savior. I'm going to be the one to help another disciple in the time of need. We, if we have a temptation, I think, as those in the Reformed tradition, is to let these people not live in our imaginations, is to not tell their story, is to not say that these are values that should be reflected in our own lives. We don't need graven images in our sanctuary to do it. But to preserve the fact that these original disciples did go and give their lives to be a witness, I think is a compelling kind of story. So, whether you thought it's compelling or not, I'll leave to you. That's Andrew. Uh, questions? Then we'll press ahead. Let's talk about James. All right. Uh, James is tricky because there are three James. James the Great, James the Lesser. Both of them are disciples of Jesus Christ. So we'll talk about James the Lesser later. And then you have James James, who is the James who wrote James. <laughs> so we got three James to keep track of. Uh, if you are a Roman Catholic, you believe that James the Lesser is James James who wrote James. But that is very dubious. So I'm going to just sort of follow the people who study this, uh, who have credentials, and I'll tell you that there are three James. That's sort of the scholarly accepted idea, and uh, you can come to your own conclusion on that. But today, we're talking about James, the son of Zebedee. 
I love James the Great because he is the younger brother of John, as in the John who wrote the Gospel of John, as is the John who is called Jesus's beloved disciple. So uh, what I love about him is that by nature of who he is, he has conflict with uh, the brother who gets a lot of attention. And uh, it is humanizing, I think, in a pretty powerful way. Uh, he and his brother, uh, he's, by the way, a business partner with Peter, who we've already talked about, and he's in business with his brother, Andrew. Uh, they're in the fishing trade, uh, sons of Zebedee. So you have James the Great, or most of the time in the Bible, they're referred to as James of Zebedee. The reason he's referred to as James the Great is because uh, ultimately, he is spoken of personally more in the scriptures than the other James. So he, he's greater in our witness to him, while the other has less content. Not greater as in one's a better person than the other. Um, so we actually hear James's story in Matthew chapter 4, 18, 21 through 22. I want to read this to you. So Jesus is walking beside the Sea of Galilee. He sees uh, two brothers, Simon called Peter, talked about Simon, and uh, his brother, Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Going on their way there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. And then this is where Jesus calls to them. And immediately, they leave the boat and their father and follow him. This is a thing in the scripture I've always loved, and you know maybe someday there will come a sermon where I get to pull this out. How do you like to be the dad in the boat as your business partners literally get out and say, see ya? I mean, that is incredible. <laughs> and, and I'm sure Zebedee would not say incredible. I'm sure he'd have a different word for it. The, the thing that we read over as, well, yes, of course, that's how the story goes, was to these people's life completely disruptive. A, a, a fissure of family relationship. Can you imagine Thanksgiving that year? <laughs> uh, right? And it's a little bit like the kid who goes to school and mom and dad say, yeah, what are you going to major in? And they say, yeah, I'm going to major in theater. And mom and dad are like, and what are you going to do for a living? Right? That's wonderful. Right? We have a job and a business. Right? And you left the business to go follow this guy around who's preaching. What are you thinking? Right? I think there's something compelling about these individuals who find themselves in Jesus's uh, most close circle. You you have James running in the same circle as Peter and as in John. And I think it's really, really striking. How James is different than Andrew is he does not appear in the story of John the Baptist. When Jesus calls, James comes immediately to follow Jesus. He, he doesn't seem to cross paths with John the Baptist. Um, but he does seem to be in that circle. One of the things I love about James is that he and his brother, uh, Jesus calls them in the gospel, what is translated the sons of thunder. And scholars have some fun conversations about this. But there's some reason to believe that these guys uh, were a little brash and uh, maybe a little violent. So there's a story that comes in the book of Luke, chapter 9, verse 54. Jesus had just previously sent out his disciples uh, two by two, and he had sent them out to the community, and he said, go minister, cast out demons, uh, heal the sick, come back to me. They come back, and uh, James uh, had been treated poorly in the community where he had been sent. 
So he comes back. This is, uh, this is verse 54 55. Um, they ask, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? And it says, this is the beauty, beautiful economy of scripture. Luke says, Jesus turned and rebuked them. <laughs> But the sons of thunder, right? Can we just call down fire on them and get this over with? Uh, it is a, it's a striking kind of image here that you have impulsiveness, that you have people who are somewhat relishing this power that Luke just told us that they had. And, you know, I think pastors, uh, we tend to emphasize the, the, the part of Luke which is the central message of Luke. That is, Jesus comes to serve the lost and the least. That, that's what Luke wants us to know. But we may not emphasize how Luke uses the disciples to illustrate the opposing side of that. While Jesus comes to cast out demons and heal the sick, right? He's doing this restorative work. The disciples are behind the scenes jockeying, and James is coming to Jesus like, hey, just one fireball, right? All it would take would be one. And we could show those people the kind of mercy that they deserve, which is judgment, not mercy, right? Uh, I think that this accentuates Luke's message, um, and it shows us a different side. James has a great mom. We've all known one of these moms, a mom who their kids grow up, and they've always been that sort of tip of the spear. They've always been ahead to help their kids, right? And even into adulthood, they're still kind of doing that, okay? That, this is James' mom, as told in the Bible. This is a wonderful story. So what ends up happening is there's a night, and I'm just going to read you the scriptural account so that I don't give it my own flair. Here, James' mother comes to Jesus with her sons. Uh, by the way, this is Matthew 20. I'm not making this up. She kneels down and asks a favor of Jesus. What is it you want? He asks. She says, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in the kingdom of heaven. I love the Bible because here are the sons who want to call down fire on the people who reject them. Their mom comes to Jesus and says, now, could we get one of them on the right hand? And whichever other one you pick, I don't really care, get him on the left. Right? Uh, there's a kind of jockeying happening here for authority inside the early church. And the scriptures tell it. It's not like it's hiding it. I mean, it's right here in plain day. So Jesus being Jesus, uh, he's always ahead of this self-interest. Uh, he says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Sons of thunder, Right? So here's the response. We can. Oh, yeah. Bring it on, Jesus. Jesus says, you will indeed drink from my cup, but sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. By the way, uh, I haven't told you this yet, but James is the first disciple recorded to be martyred. He's only two, one of two, of the disciples whose martyrdom is recorded in scripture. And so uh, one scholar pointed out, and I thought very helpful, James, in terms of what we are told about him 
as it relates to characters like Peter or John, because of the emphasis given to those two disciples and their later historical significance, James doesn't get a lot of time in the scripture by proportion. But where he is mentioned is striking, because his mother comes to negotiate for him being at the right or the left, and Jesus asks, can you drink from this cup? And they say, we can. James is there at the transfiguration, James is there at the moment in which Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. And guess where else James is? James is in the Garden of Gethsemane to see Jesus at this very edge of life. And it's striking to me that he will be the first disciple willing to lay down his life for the sake of the gospel. And to whatever extent he is the son of thunder and he's impulsive, he's clearly willing to, if you let me say, put his money where his mouth is. And as the story goes on, uh, we move beyond the actual biblical record, and we do have just a little bit of time for me to to fill this out for you. Um, You may know that James is considered the patron saint of Spain, which is odd. Because uh, we know, uh, somewhat uh, due to historical records, that James uh, died at the hands of King Agrippa I, uh, he was one of the ruling leaders uh, that the early church was squaring off against. Uh, King Agrippa had him uh, killed by sword. Uh, theologically, we're told, uh, or sorry, church tradition says that that was that uh, he was beheaded. That was at the year uh, 44 A.D. So we're talking a, a full 30 years before the dissolution of the Jerusalem church, and. So because of the fact that he died in 44 AD, we, we believe that Jesus' life, death, resurrection was somewhere around the, the 30 to 33 AD mark. Scholars debate these things, but it, you know, just use 30 as an easy round number. You're looking at about 14 years, realistically, from Jesus' ministry to the death of the first disciple. And so the question is asked, how did Spain come to claim James as their patron saint, uh, because there's really very little reason to believe he could have gotten to Spain. But I'll give you the prevailing theory of how that could have been. So King Agrippa uh, is cracking down on Jewish dissenters in his region. And as was very popular to do, he enslaved a thousand men. This is actually historically recorded. So we know this happened. He enslaved a thousand Jewish men and he deported them to Spain. This is one of the reasons why King Agrippa was so hated was because he was essentially deporting Jewish fathers. And the story is that James knew of this deportation because he lived in the region and he decided that the Jews in Spain needed to be evangelized. So tradition would hold it that he got on a boat and he made his way to Spain so that he could evangelize to these a thousand men who had been deported from Palestine. There is zero evidence that this happened. There is no reason to believe that it did happen. The next time in history that Andrew or sorry, James shows up in the historical record as it relates to Spain is in the year 800. Why is 800 important? Because the Islamic army is making their way across Europe and suddenly they are moving Christian relics out of the way. They're, they're, they're moving it ahead of this opposing force. And here the Bishop of Spain 
with warfare on the on the horizon says that we have found James body in a tomb hidden as we know it always has been because interestingly though there's no historical record that James made it to Spain there is historical record of the Spaniards talking about it all the way around 100 to 200 AD so however the story got put in it's very very old and it's deeply deeply held so story goes on this actually became unbelievably important um Jerusalem and Rome were the only two more popular place for pilgrims to go than the cathedral holding James body at least reported to and so this becomes this important kind of pilgrimage community and um Oh, I should have told you the, the place where, where, um, that you can go today, uh, it remains is called Santiago de Campolesta. There you go. Um, in 1884, the Pope solved the problem. So, uh, good for us. Uh, we don't have to have any questions about it anymore. The Pope declared that the body is indeed James's body. So, handled. Um, scholars would, say that we don't know. Um, but the, the interesting thing is that the earliest record that we have is that by the year 200, the church had successfully evangelized in Spain. And so I think, you know, I, I want to say to my credit, I told you three weeks ago that we were going to have conversations like this. So <laughs> that, that there's a lot that we don't know. But what we do know is that to this day, the Spaniards trace their ancient Christian roots to this disciple. And we know that they were doing it not far after the earliest evangelism of Spain itself. And what I find really, really interesting is regardless of what we care about as people who live in the Enlightenment and in modernity, is we, when we think of history, we want to know what happened. But when we only engage in that question, and I admit to you, we don't actually know what happened. What we do know is that the, the Christians in Spain not only heard the gospel, but to them it was important that the gospel that they heard was the first gospel. That they could say, our roots go back to the inner three, to, to, to these people. And whether or not James made it to witness to these thousand men who had been enslaved and, and he had done that very early in his ministry, uh, we don't know. Uh, but what we do know is that these folks find in James a kind of witness to that original centrality of the gospel. And maybe to their credit, that, that is a thing that the reformers really threw out. Uh, you know, they, they said, that ultimately our apostolicity does not lie in the people that we know, but rather in the gospel as it's been proclaimed, right? The, the reformers saw themselves as going back to scripture. What does scripture mean? What do we see in scripture? And that's beautiful, but I just want to submit to you this week, I walked away with a big smile because uh, as someone deeply in the Reformed tradition, I, I mean, you know, that these are, we, I'm with the Reformed people. There's something beautiful about mom who comes and says, can we get one of these two boys there? And the Spaniards have claimed that son. Uh, there's that, 
There's something human about that. Like when we come to church, it's good to be reminded the faith has, has flesh and bones. These are real people. And whether or not James made it, you know, at, at this point, I don't know that I care that much. I, I just think there's something really uh, humanizing about his story in particular. And, um, you know, maybe it's somebody else's bones that they have there, but at least they've not been passing his skull around for thousands of years. <laughs> not to be dark, but yeah. Uh, th- friends, thanks for being here. Uh, I believe next week is Pastor Appreciation, so that will uh, will that'll preclude our visit, and uh, we will pick up again after next week. Where, where in Scripture does it tell if James is martyrdom? Uh, it does. So James's martyrdom is in Acts. I have my Bible with me. I'll get it for you. Okay. Yeah, uh, I'll have that next time. Yep, we'll do. Thanks, friends.